Thank you, band. Really appreciate that. Just before we come to, the, uh, to read the scriptures, I want to uh, just kind of uh, give an outline of, uh, of why this series and what it's called. So this series, uh, Phil and I have um, uh, called uh, The Heart of Jesus. And uh, it was uh, kind of stemming from uh, a, the, a, a message that Phil preached earlier on in January from Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who, you who are weary and heavy laden or burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and, uh, and so forth. And he talks about his gentle heart, the meek and gentle heart. And there was something in that. It was uh, caught up in, in, in a conference uh, we were part of. And so we, we kind of want in this journey towards Easter to explore about the heart of Jesus Phil helped us with that last week about joy, but also alongside that, to look at some of the, the moments and the events in, in Jesus' life. So a couple of weeks ago, I preached a sermon I called Tweenager Jesus. Tweenagers is that preteen kind of post-child. I know it's a bit of a modern construct, but Jesus at the temple when he was 12. And today I want to pick up as Jesus is baptized. Why are we doing these two things? Well, I think we often use this phrase, don't we, in life um, about words and deeds. You know, it's not just what they say, what they do, but actually words are important. And in the words of Jesus and in his life of, of how he acts, what he does, how he follows his father. There's something really important to grasp in deed and word about the heart of Jesus. And I hope we'll gather some of that through the story of his baptism. We're slightly behind the junior church. They're on ahead of us. So if you um, have some young people here and you've, you're sitting down to lunch or some point today, you could, you could ask for some pointers of what they discovered last week. Um, no guesses for what's happening next week. Anyway, I'm going to read for two passages. The first one is John's account of Jesus' baptism, chapter 1, verse 29 to 34. It'll be on the screen. Thank you, Sarah. And then we'll read Matthew's account as well. The next day... John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And then from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to baptize, be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. 
it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, you can choose your narrating voice at this point. James Earl Jones or whoever it is. This is my son, whom I love with him. I am well pleased. This account is carried on all four of the Gospels. Of course, everything that's included in the Gospels is really important. There's some unique features, many unique features in John. Luke carries certain parables that Matthew and Mark don't. But there are some essential features that all of them carry. And by way of repetition, you could get the impression that they are important. If you say it once, or if I have to tell you again, you know that as parents, a third time, three strikes. No, four times we are told about his baptism. Four times we are told many things, and particularly on the journey of the Gospels towards Holy Week. That's where this series is heading to discover more about the heart of Jesus, heading towards Easter. But in these early days of Jesus, Matthew contains a little bit, Mark nothing, Luke some really famous Christmas stories. We've read them last month. And John has that wonderful prologue. In the beginning was the word. But as I mentioned two weeks ago, there's really not much from him being a toddler up to two, fleeing to Egypt. He comes back. They settle in Nazareth. At age of 12, during Passover, they journey as part of their worship and end up at the temple. And Jesus is left kind of home alone. He's in his father's house. And his mom and dad are frantic. And then... Nothing from the age of 12 to 30 until Jesus appears by the river Jordan. For much of Jesus' early years, as I mentioned last time, there is just the normal, the ordinary, his life as he grows up, of being a son, of being a sibling, the eldest child of also learning a trade, the nine-to-five of work of a carpenter, of learning how to plane and shave and saw and construct, and that's the end of my carpentry vocabulary. And go about the seasons and the life of Nazareth. Normal, hidden. And I mentioned... Last time, about sometimes God is at work in the unseen, in the unspectacular, in the mundane. That there's a dignity in working life. There's a dignity and joy and presence of God in community as he would 
gather for worship in the synagogue, in the rhythms of the life of Israel, of, of heading to the temple, the seasons and festivals of the day-to-day, of the years of honing and polishing and faithful obedience as he grew. Sometimes things that are most precious take time to form. As a child, I was, uh, not as a child, as a teenager, I studied uh, GCC geology. I really enjoyed it, rocks and, and all that, and uh, landscape. And um, the teacher of my geology class, Mr. Kennett, he was, there were five of us in this class. We were doing it as a timetable filler uh, whilst we were doing A-levels. We had to have a certain amount of time, and I was doing my A-levels, and I had to find another kind of few hours, and we thought this would be fun, the five of us. And uh, it was fascinating, and, and he had this collection of, of precious stones, of gems. Um, they were all still there at the end of the year, I have to say. We didn't take them off to support our university careers. But I always remember being struck at some of the beauty of those precious stones. Maybe some of you carry them on a ring on your finger. Or occasionally you might window browse at the jewelers. A few years ago, I went... Uh, accompanied a friend who'd asked me to do their wedding service to Tiffany's to look at an engagement ring. And my goodness, the rocks were well and big. And gulping at their price tag, dared not touch them. But then I kind of knew that this particular ruby that Mr. Kennett had was beautifully polished. And over the course of geology, I realized that you don't just pick them up like that. They don't just fall out of the ground in the form that we so see them as the most precious and beautiful. I learned that this particular ruby took about six to eight weeks from the rough I was going to say rough diamond. It wasn't. It was a ruby. But from the rough and the, and the formless to being this thing that captivates. Years of honing and polishing of precious times for Jesus, unseen, unnoticed, but hard work and effort. You see... As I mentioned last time, it's really important to know that right from the get-go, from the start of Jesus' conception and life, he always was the son, the, the beloved, only begotten son of the Father, Heavenly Father. There's been misreadings of, of the Gospels that see at different points, well, suddenly that's where Jesus becomes divine or loses his divinity or He's kind of started off a human, but then he got elevated to some sort of superhero, kind of was invested in the spider bite or, you know, a a kryptonite moment. Not at all. Right from the moment, Jesus always was fully God, fully human. In his conception and Elizabeth meeting him and, and, uh, and John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth leaping for joy. The first one to recognize the son of God, an unborn baby. But all the way through as Anna and Simeon in the temple when he was presented of, of the, the leaders in Jerusalem at the age of 12 being astonished. And Jesus saying, I am about my father's business. I'm in his house. Jesus always knew who he was. But it wasn't until this moment of baptism when the world began to see. One of the things 
we need to recognize is, is the ordinary, the ongoing, the daily, the learning of scriptures, the, the pattern of life where we gather to worship implicitly bit by bit. He is honing us and polishing us and forming us and at work in us. It's not just the spectacular and the highlights. It's in the mundane and the graft and the day by day. For 30 years, he was prepared for three years of ministry. Do not grow weary in living for Jesus. And in many ways, it's really helpful for us to know, and this this weaves its way through this passage, that for Jesus, it was really important and for us really encouraging and central to know that he lived in life with the day-to-day challenges. How do you wake up? Grumpy? (laughs) Or kind of like, oh, it's a new day. I know we've all got different personality types. I've been around youth work enough to know when we take them on festivals, waking teenagers up, you need a long stick to poke them with and run away before they bite. We don't use sticks, really. Just (laughs) wanted to uh, clarify that. being recorded after all. Um, Of the challenge of Monday morning, of living in a community with neighbors, the pressures of life, and yet we're told about Jesus, and this is what is so wonderfully profound. He never sinned. He never sinned. And when we hear that, we kind of gulp and think surely not because we understand ourselves and know that that is so so different to us if we're really honest about ourselves isn't it many of you have raised children and kind of know goodness me to have a sinless child that's a big ask but that would be such a blessing perhaps what about the other siblings (laughs) how will they perceive that and yet When we dig into this, it's so, so critical and so, so vital and so, so affirming to know that the Jesus we encounter, the heart of Jesus as he meets the broken and the dispossessed and the shunned and the marginalized and the the alone and those who are, are most distraught or most prideful, he's not abstract and difficult and distant, but the one to whom everyone is drawn. There's something beautiful about sinlessness. It's not puritanical or holier than thou or only for those saintly folk and we'd really like to remain kind of like how we are actually. The heart of Jesus is a beautiful thing. The more we become like Jesus, the more alive we become and the more like we were always meant to be and the more light will fill us. And you know what happens with light? It dispels darkness and is attractive. How do I know that he was uh, sinless? Well, there's many strands that I could pull on and, and draw you to, but an obvious one is Hebrews 14, verse 15, when that writer, reflecting upon the Son of God, says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to feel, who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. I want to underline that. In the normality of life, it matters how we walk. 
But as we come to this moment of baptism, it really, really does matter, as it does in every moment. It matters that Jesus was sinless, that he was able to offer himself as the pure, spotless Lamb of God on the cross to deal with the problem, to deal with every blight and wrong and mistake and mess that we still encounter if he wasn't. There is no hope in this story. So the perplexing question of of why was Jesus baptized? If he was sinless, as he was, why did he go to John? Why did he go to the river with all those people who were kind of saying, we, we see the institution of Jerusalem, we see the temple system and the corruption, and you know, all on those leaders the same, they're in it for themselves. Doesn't that, it's not rooted in history, is it? But there was this guy, John the Baptist, the, the greatest, we're told, of the Old Testament prophets. And, and he was calling people to have a change of heart, to take stock of themselves, to look long and hard at the heart and say, are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you really wanting the kingdom of God? Or are you just going through the rat race and the cycle and the ongoing? Are you content with the status quo? Or do you want everything that the Lord has promised? And you know what? Those who were alert and seeking, when they looked at their hearts, said, we want that. I want to be part of that. I don't want to be stuck in the same old, same old, year in, year out. I want to see the kingdom of God and the fulfillment of everything God had promised. Are you with that? Some stayed in the humdrum struggles of life and others went to John. And he baptized them. In the river, because they said, I'm, I want to be ready. I want to be ready. I want to be right when he comes. And the Lamb of God comes, Jesus. And there's this encounter, because John kind of is a prophet. He's a, he's a wise man. He's a godly man. He understands. And he sees in Jesus, I've baptized hundreds, but you're the only one who doesn't need to. In fact, I'm in the same boat as the rest of them. You should be baptizing me. Because Jesus has been perfectly righteous for 30 years. And yet Jesus says, to fulfill all righteousness, I must be baptized. Why? Well, we've already said Jesus led a perfect life in obscurity so that he could die a perfect death in full view with all the world watching. And yet he was baptized. I want to just draw out a few thoughts on that. I'll try and answer that question as well. You may think this is stating the obvious, but sometimes it's just good to say it again. It's in the four Gospels, and in fact, whenever you read the rest of the New Testament of what happens after Jesus is ascended back to heaven and he's raised to life, baptism figures all over. 
in the early church, in the story of Acts, chapter by chapter, when people turned to Jesus, they were baptized. When they repented, they were baptized. In, in the theology of, of what Paul talks about and others, baptism is a key part of, of what they understand about the grace and the power and the wonder work of, of Jesus, what the Father was doing. And the Gospels want to underline this for us, that baptism is a vital and essential feature in the life of Jesus himself. This isn't a Christian super spiritual bolt-on for the real keenies. Well, perhaps Jesus was a real ke- the real keeny, and he was baptized. Four times in the Gospels, the story is recounted. Why? Well, there's something about the imagery and the, and the meaning of what is taking place in baptism. Clearly, it's coming to the, to the river. Clearly, it's going into the water. Uh, and we don't know whether he was plunged forward or backwards or ducked down. or uh, We don't know, but he was plunged. And that's what the word means to baptize. It's drawn from the, to, uh, an idea of how you dye cloth. You get some, un, kind of some white wool or whitish cloth, linen. And in order to make it fancy and fashionable, you put it in the dye. Not like tie-dye, but you plunge it right in. So the the color goes everywhere. That's the root of it. It's to be submerged into or plunged into, to take on the likeness of that which you're immersed into. Expressed a moment of change, coming out different. Of course, in the, in the Old Testament, there was allusions and preparations of types of, of ways to demonstrate this. Of, of course, when people be, wanted to turn to become uh, Jews and follow the Holy One of Israel, part of that process of becoming Jewish was a series of washings, of making oneself clean. Of course, that's carried and there's a background in there. But there's also an allusion in, uh, and a reference in First Peter chapter 3. I'll read it. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you know the story of Noah, it's in Genesis chapter 6. Judgment was coming, and Noah listened to God and said, God said, I will rescue you if you do what I ask. And what did Noah do? He spent a long time preparing. But the rains came. The heavens were opened. There's an illusion even in this chapter when the Spirit came. The heavens were opened and the rain came and the waters rose. And yet the ark was their means of rescue. There's a servant motif. The very fact that there was the River Jordan, in entering into the promised land, they had to cross through the river, God parted it. They went through into the promised land. Again, a little bit earlier in the story in, in, um, in Exodus, when God rescued them from slavery, of being under the oppression and of being entirely under the tyranny of forces they could not escape, God rescued them on the Passover. You remember that. 
and said, come follow me, I will lead you into the promised land. And they left and they journeyed and they got to between the Red Sea and, uh, and Pharaoh who was seeking to pursue them and take them back and, uh, and prove to them there is no one who can rescue. He is the most powerful. And yet God miraculously opens the way and they pass through this Red Sea into new life, free, rescued. Again, it's a motif, it's a, it's a type, it's a foreshadowing. Water matters. Baptism is so important. In the, in the language of a theologian, forgive me, but I know some of you like this, I do. Uh, your baptism was an eschatological, I should be able to say it, couldn't I? Eschatological act, marking your move from the old age to the new age. The resurrection of Jesus marked the beginning of the new age. Your resurrection with Jesus enacted in baptism marks the beginning of this new age for you. It's really important, baptism. And secondly, we see in this that we see for Jesus, it's an act of obedience. With Jesus in his heart, he loves to please his Father. That's his desire. To fulfill all righteousness. He knew that this was the right, the good, the proper, the, the way to go to be baptized by John to fulfill the Father's will. It was a demonstration in word and deed of his faith his obedience, and his trust. What greater standard to follow? What greater inspiration and example to marvel at and say, yeah. This is what it looks like to be a child of God. That beautiful affirmation for with the voice from heaven, this is my son, as much for Jesus as for all those gathered by the banks and the shores of that river, whom I love. And with him I'm well pleased because he's his son and his child and his son and his child is stepping out and following faithfully. There's a declaration in this baptism moment for Jesus for us to hear of who he is, the Son of God, of that he is the authentic one, that he is the one who was promised, the Son of God, fully divine and human. And that this marks the moment where the kingdom of God begins. Have you ever noticed in the story a picture of art about this, that We've got John and Jesus in a river and Father somehow in clouds and light and a voice. And then there's the dove. More, sometimes more like a pigeon uh, in some of the art, but a dove. Have you ever wondered why? Why dove? It's a fascinating and perplexing True course i'm not suggesting it was a random bird floating past and got in the way there's something profound and provocative about it in genesis 1 2 chapter 1 verse 2 when god is creating when he's going about what he's doing it says the, the spirit of god is hovering over the waters 
something about the, the recreative act of God that is taking place right before their eyes. But more than that, uh, in again one of the other stories in, um, in the Old Testament, did you know, you've heard of the, 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 the book of Jonah, the prophet Jonah and the big fish that swallowed him up? You know that story, Chap- four chapters, amazing Old Testament story, amazing uh, act. Did you know that Jonah's name in Hebrew means dove? What did Jonah come to do to preach repentance to those who were just awful? The worst of the worst in Nineveh by the Assyrians. And Jonah was tasked to go and preach them. And you know the story, he ran the other way and he had a big detour. But he ended up calling them to have a change of heart. And what happened? They did. Jesus brings salvation. If you clash yourself with broken, thrown out, worthless, beyond the pale, goodness, the gospel's for you. Maybe also there's a reference back to Noah after the flood and wondering when are these waters going to go? When's life going to get back to normal? (laughs) They send out a dove and the dove returns and settles on Noah to say the new era has come. Full salvation in Jesus, full rescue as the Holy Spirit, like a dove, settles on Jesus. And of course, the voice of the Father. If you ever wonder if there's uh, any ambiguity in Scripture about how God can be one and three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, classic place to go to. There's Jesus right in front of you, center stage. There's the Father, his voice from heaven, and the Spirit of God descending. And obviously, even in what the Father says, beautiful words that we all need to hear. We think this applies to Jesus, absolutely. But the words of the Father for every believer, you are my child, I love you, I'm well pleased. But of course, in these words, there's the depth and the resonance of so much from the Old Testament. Psalm 2, a kingly psalm, who declares that the, the king of Israel, David was the first one, uh, at least, and this psalm addressed to him. If you want to check that out, look at 2 Samuel 7 and the covenant with, the, with David and his offspring for, all, for eternity, everlasting covenant. It talks about how today God would become the father and the king would be the son. That in the voice of God, there's, a, there's an, an utterance and a, a declaration, whether they see it at that time or not, that this is the Messiah. This is the one of the King of Kings, the line of David, who will establish and inaugurate and bring in the full reign and rule of the kingdom of God. And also, Isaiah 42, which talks about the suffering servant. The messianic son, the king, the one who will be worshipped, but the one who will suffer. The one who will take upon himself the sins of the world, who will give up his whole life. In this moment of baptism, being marked out, declared and equipped for the task, filled with the Spirit. Baptism is so, so important. We can't get away from it. I mean, I love the fact that we're called a Baptist church. 
because we want to underline that this matters. There's so much caught up with that word that speaks of grace and what God is doing with us. And rightly so, the experience for every believer. But in that moment, in this story, as Jesus is baptized, the inference is for us. Jesus went into the waters of judgment in the river. In Luke 12, he recounts, but I have a baptism to undergo. I mean, he's already gone through the waters, but he says, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. You see, Jesus is the, is the trespasser. He's breaking the boundaries between heaven and earth. The, the heavens are open. We're never told they close. The baptism is the, the visible moment in that Jordan River where God, fully man, fully divine, is with the sinners, with the unclean. The clean is amongst us. The separation that should have been maintained. Here is the Holy One. He is in the midst, in the dirty waters, with the dirty people to say, I am here to bring a baptism that only I can bring. And I am looking forward for the joy set before me till it's completed. Hallelujah. Of course, in in baptism are the themes of repentance and the forgiveness of sin and the fulfillment of righteousness. You see, baptism is the sign of sonship and adoption and of the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, when we get the pool out at the front and we baptize people, all this is caught up and we only have a few moments at baptism services to talk about it. But isn't it wonderful? On Easter Sunday, we're going to have the pool out. You can guess what I'm going to say next. We'd love to baptize you if you've never been. Because it really does matter. Not because we've got someone to baptize, but because it speaks of your understanding, of your grasp of the reality that the Son of God came for you to rescue and, and lead you into the promised land that you're one of his children and he loves you and he is well pleased with you and the Holy Spirit is upon you and you're part and parcel of him and his kingdom. It really does matter. In, in my old uh, congregation in Leicester, we used to baptize people. It's such a joy to do because it speaks of new life and it speaks of all that I've been talking about in practical reality in you and our life together as a fellowship. But there was occasionally I'd use, well, actually regularly I'd use these words afterwards and there was a little phrase and it was like a little responsive liturgy. And I, I'd get the congregation and myself to say, as someone had been baptized, I remember my baptism and I'm thankful. You know, often when we baptize people, we know that so often people are remembering theirs. Just like Jesus appeared, it was an outward sign of what he knew to be true. I don't need to underline this too much, but baptism is so important. Just get on with it. Don't put it off. Because actually, righteousness is fulfilled. The way of Jesus happens in your life when you do this. Because it shows outwardly what you know to be true in your head and heart. I want us to finish with a, a kind of poem prayer that I came across. 
And I just thought, it sums up so much. It's by a guy called Walter Brueggemann. He writes so well on the Old Testament. He writes this. We celebrate that splashing moment at the Jordan, less muddy than the river is now. John the Baptist's voice of demand and challenge and Jesus submitting to him. John recognizes him before the rest of us do. He called him Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he plunged him into the waters of the river. He is a lamb who suffers and saves. He loves the world. He addressed the skewed, distorted way of the world. He comes up out of the water and makes new. We become aware out of his baptism of a new world, a world of grace and goodness, a world of freedom and opportunity, a world of justice and mercy and forgiveness, all from that moment of water and the dove and the name and the power. And we remember our own baptism. When we were named and claimed and called to newness, in our moment of water like his, our world began again. We are grafted into God's new governance. We are summoned into new obedience. And we are rooted in fresh goodness and forgiveness. We hear the splash of water and pause and begin again. Not burdened by what is old, not bewitched by what is failed, not cowed by what threatens us. Now is our time for newness and hope and love and forgiveness and we, after him, re-enter your newness yet again. Let's pray.